Hello, I'm Lee Cantrell. I'm a Juan oncologist at the University of Virginia, and Dr. Romano and I are here today for episode three of the radiation series in SGO Education Committee podcast. And I'm Kara Romano, a radiation oncologist at the University of Virginia with Dr. Cantrell, and we're happy to be here today. Today, we're building on the prior radiation oncology podcast and want to discuss radiation for cervical cancer specifically. So we'll discuss this in several cases today, just as you think about learning about radiation. So we're going to take a first case as a 35-year-old premenopausal patient who is diagnosed with early stage squamous cell cancer. We'll give her stage 1B3 based on clinical exam. And just a little reminder, stage 1 disease is confined to the cervix and 1B3 is disease that is four centimeters or greater um, in greatest dimension. So over time, staging has changed from what once was clinical staging back in the dark ages when I was training to now an acceptance of the use of imaging such as PET and MRI. So as a surgeon, when I examine a patient in the clinic before any imaging is performed, I want to be able to counsel them that they might ultimately need surgery or and or radiation. And so based on clinical exam, and this is a patient who is a surgical candidate for radical hysterectomy, but given the size of her tumor is at risk for having intermediate or high-risk features on the final specimen that would require further radiation. But that's how I think about it as a surgeon. So Dr. Romano is going <laughs> to take it as a radiation oncologist. So I think all of our goal as an oncologist is to maximize the chance of cure and minimize the risk of toxicity. And we know over time that treatment with one modality is likely going to have a much um, lower risk of toxicity compared to either two or three modalities of treatment. So our goal as radiation oncologists and general oncologists during this whole initial workup is to get the most accurate assessment of disease extent that we can. So we're very fortunate now to have lots of tools and technology for doing this. So uh, radiation oncologists love imaging. We all love imaging. So in this case, I would recommend that we get an MRI. MRI pelvis provides a lot more soft tissue contrast definition than either CT or ultrasound. So it's our preferred modality for staging the local extent of disease in cervical cancer. So specifically, what I'm looking for on that MRI is an accurate assessment of both tumor size and then the extent. So does it grow into the parametria, involve the pelvic sidewalls? Is it invading other organs like bladder or rectum? Those will all inform both our staging and our treatment decisions. Um, and there's actually a study that showed that the combination of pelvic exam plus MRI improved our staging accuracy from about 60% up above 80%. And that's particularly true for tumors that have more of that endocervical growth. So that's no offense to Dr. Cantrell's exam technique. It's more just to say that now we're so fortunate to have all this great technology and advanced imaging that can help us not only guide our staging, but then our treatment decision and discussion. And I think um, what you said initially, Kara, is so true that we're all trying to find the best treatment for the patient so they have the best chance of cure. So in this patient, we obtain an MRI of the pelvis. The overall tumor size is about three centimeters, but the bulk of the tumor is posterior. Um, and the radiologist advises there's nearly parametrial involvement. So what would you what would you tell this patient, Dr. Romano? 
So first, I'm so glad we got the MRI. Um, so this is a patient who may ultimately need adjuvant radiation therapy. And so in that case, we really want to think about the balancing the toxicities of both of either definitive or adjuvant radiation in providing our counseling. So as we know, pelvic radiation has a number of acute and late toxicities, which are particularly important for younger women. So we mentioned this woman is 35. So a few acute toxicities she may experience during pelvic radiation would be fatigue, GI symptoms, so that's like nausea, diarrhea, urgency, bladder symptoms like frequency, dysuria, in changes like vulvovaginal irritation. And those are all cumulative side effects that occur during those weeks of radiation and kind of build up at the end. We expect them to resolve in a week or two after the radiation finishes or at least improve. So those are the acute set of toxicities. The toxicities, on the other hand, can develop over months to years after we finish radiation. And in a young woman like this, we're particularly aware of toxicities such as her premature ovarian failure. Unfortunately, it's nearly definite in most patients treated with pelvic radiation because the ovaries are so sensitive to radiation and that sensitivity actually increases with age. So in this patient, we're really thinking about premature ovarian failure. And then other toxicities kind of resolve around scar tissue. So those are some long-term changes in bowel and bladder habit, damage to bladder or rectum, which may cause bleeding, ulceration, fistula, and then vaginal symptoms, so stenosis or dryness, which all can contribute to sexual dysfunction, which we know is particularly important in these younger women. Um, and then lastly, radiation to the pelvis can cause changes in bone density, which make these patients higher risk of pelvic insufficiency fractures. So the list is not short, but the good news is that the overall risk of severe complications, so that's grade three or higher toxicity, is still less than 10%. And I believe as our technology continues to improve, I do think that the risk of some of these late toxicities will continue to decline. So those are all things that we would talk to our patient about. Thank you. So speaking of technology, tell us about the treatment planning and discussion of modalities utilized. So um, I know in the first podcast, they talked about 3D versus IMRT. So how would you discuss that maybe with your fellows in learning, but also the patient? Yeah, so our fe- for our fellows, there are three primary modalities for pelvic radiation for locally advanced cervical cancer. So the older technique is 3D, you may have heard about. So 3D modality for whole pelvis is was traditionally called a four-field box, meaning AP, PA, two laterals. So essentially, everything in the pelvis got the same dose. But modern radiation therapy, where we use IMRT or intensity-modulated radiation therapy, is the extra external beam technique where we actually carve the dose around the areas at risk, like the lymph node basins, and then we carve out what we don't want to treat, so normal things like bladder and bowel. And there's really strong data for the use of IMRT and pelvic malignancies. And again, it continues to show that as we use advanced technology, we can limit the toxicity. And I think that's what's exciting as we move forward is that we should be able to treat more patients to cure with fewer long-term toxicity, especially for a young patient. So we'll turn now to a second case, a 65-year-old, so postmenopausal patient with a locally advanced cervical cancer. So she will give her stage 3C2 disease. And so the surgery is not an option for this patient. So this patient needs definitive chemoradiation. 
So can you tell us about the radiation planning, dosing, and timing for this type of patient? Yeah, so this patient with stage 3C2 disease would absolutely recommend definitive chemoradiation. So our external beam is, we would use IMRT, fancy technology. We would treat not only the whole pelvis, but also the periaortic nodal region. And that is sometimes called extended field RT, or if you're looking at older trials, EFRT is where we're treating the periaortic nodes as well. So that would go to a total dose of about 45 to 50 gray and 25 daily treatments or fractions. And then you would also want to boost the lymph nodes themselves, the bulky disease. And currently, most radiation oncologists are doing this with a technique called simultaneous integrated boost or SIB, which means you're giving a little higher dose. Yeah, we love our, our acronyms. <laughs> so we give a little higher dose to the lymph nodes, and but in the same total number of treatments. And then we would follow with a brachytherapy boost. And so all this is being done with weekly chemotherapy, concurrent weekly cisplatinum in general, with the goal for five or six cycles, depending on where their radiation falls. And we usually try to give that on Monday of the week of radiation, given Monday through Friday, because it helps to sensitize the radiation and the tumor to the radiation. And so that sometimes can get us in trouble uh, with people's toxicities when we try to do both things. Dr. Cantrell is exactly right. So the timing is really important of everything. So one is the timing of chemotherapy with radiation. And then another is the overall timing. So we know that their overall treatment time being less than 56 days or eight weeks is an independent prognostic factor for local control. So in summary, timing is really important. And the goal is to complete all of the treatment. So first, First day of external beam radiation to last day of brachytherapy and ideally less than seven to eight weeks. So that requires a lot of coordination between your gynocs and your radiation oncologist. So I think it's always important, one, to be friends with your colleagues and two, just to make sure that you're really communicating that timing um, with the patient, make sure they're aware of the importance, not missing treatment, and then that we're smoothly moving right into brachytherapy as soon as your external beam is wrapping up. And I think that we can't say enough that 56 days is data that we know um, can improve a person's survival. And I think that's important to communicate to patients because then that's something that they play a part in is coming yeah. to treatment. Yeah, I agree, Lee. And I actually oftentimes will draw out what the treatments look like for the patients, like make little lines for each week and breaky and show them you know, what makes up those 56 days. And then, like you said, then I think they really play a role in, in some of that ownership of you know not missing treatments, even if they're not feeling well and really trying to come each day because we just know that we have the best chance of curing your cancer if we finish all of this in less than eight weeks. Perfect. And so the techniques that we were just discussing were covered in detail in the first two podcasts. So if you've just started the podcast here in episode three, we would refer you back to the first and second podcast for the details of all radiation techniques. But I do think that brachytherapy is one that we should probably talk about since it's so important for cervical cancer. So there's two techniques, high dose rate and low dose rate, and there are history with those, and then the more up-to-date treatment expectations. So tell us about brachytherapy, Dr. Romano. 
Thank you so much for asking about breaky because I am a breaky believer. As a GYN radiation oncologist, to say we we all breaky believers. So it is such a critical component of the curative treatment of cervical cancer. There is strong data that there's a survival advantage to receiving brachytherapy. The contrary point to that is that brachytherapy is technically more challenging to both give and receive than external beam radiation. So, and not all radiation oncology facilities have the ability to do brachytherapy. So I think it's really important for us all to be aware of, of some of those disparities that exist around our country so that we have an opportunity to work together to make sure that all patients have access to high-quality care and brachy. So historically, brachy was delivered with what's called LDR or low-dose rate radiation. So that's where the applicator was placed into the cervix and then was left there for either several hours or a couple of days. The patient had to be admitted to the hospital. So the downside there was the patient was immobilized. It required a hospital admission and then exposed, essentially exposed staff to radiation. But now modern brachytherapy is almost exclusively delivered in the U.S. with high-dose rate. BM-192 is the source. So that means that the radiation is delivered over a couple minutes, and then the procedures can all be done on an outpatient basis. So that improves patient safety and minimizes risk to staff. And then it also provides a lot more flexibility to the radiation oncologist in terms of the type of applicators and the imaging that we're going to use. And so overall, it's really, I think, advancing the field and improving outcomes for brachytherapy. And I, and I think your point about that it's not available across the at all regions of the country is an important one that we'll maybe leave listeners with is that for a patient, you know, we live in a state where not all of our patients live close to an institution that can offer brachytherapy and that being able to travel to a place for that high dose rate is probably worth it for a patient that's able to do that. Any thoughts on that? And we'll call it a, a podcast. So I think just in conclusion, I think it always is so good to have great coordination between your care providers. So I think one is, is communicating um, any patients that may be at need in need of brachytherapy so that they can get to an academic or, or large medical center to provide brachytherapy. And then two is really counseling the patients about the importance of that in, in their curative treatment. Um, so that again, they can be kind of partners in their care and understand the need to have to travel or go through the additional treatments. Because um, ultimately, our goal is to provide the best chance of care and the lowest risk of toxicity. So I think we can do that together with our current group of trainees. Yes, agree. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. The information presented is that of the contributing faculty and presenters and does not necessarily represent the views of the Society of Gynecologic Oncology or any named company or organization providing financial support. Specific therapies discussed may not be approved and or specified for use as indicated by the faculty or presenters. If you like what you heard today, please let us know by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and hitting the follow button wherever you're listening. If you have suggestions for future SGO On The Go podcasts, please email us directly at education at sgo.org.